Hello world, this is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. Today's guest is probably one you have already heard of. If you are a fan of Black heterodox thinkers and you aren't following Clifton Duncan, what is you doing? Clifton got the attention of many in this space when as an up-and-coming working actor, he refused to take the COVID vaccine and suffered the consequences. These consequences turned out to be devastating. Clifton quickly went from steady work on Broadway and in television to nothing. In this episode, we talk about his COVID experience, but it turns out Clifton is more than the guy who didn't get the jab. He has a lot of interesting things to say about the arts in general, why they're important, what has gone wrong, and ways we can turn this ship in the right direction. It was a privilege to have Clifton on the show because forever and always, there is no such thing as a Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. Today and I think that probably most people who follow FBT probably know who you are because I feel like you're one of the dominant kind of heterodox black thinkers, at least on the Twitter space that I see all the time. But I know that you had and really I would say maybe like a dream career budding before the pandemic. You were doing theater, you were doing, you know, um, network TV, kind of everything that I think an actor artist kind of dreams of. Um, and I probably would have heard of you organically through your your craft, through your art. But unfortunately, the way that I heard of you was because you stood up for, for freedom, for medical freedom. Um, you're a principled person who said, I'm not getting the vaccine. And then because of that, you basically kind of got canceled or, you know, you, everything kind of came to a screeching halt as far as your acting career goes. Um, and now you're having to flex and do different things and uh, adapt and adjust and sort of what I would consider unfair ways. So I'm just curious, just to kick us off here, how did you have the the moral courage or the principle to even be willing to like give these things up to stand up for what you thought was right in terms of take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine? You know what? I, I still don't know. I mean, there's literally been um, days where I've been so distraught because I say to myself, I have no idea why I'm like this. Um, (laughs) I don't know why, you know, I don't know why I couldn't just go along with everything or even get a fake card. I mean, a lot of, a lot of actors are using fake cards um, so they can still work. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, I think it was a conflation of a couple of things that that were happening. Um, I mean, 2020 was such a crazy year and, you know, I mean, I didn't, um, I didn't vote for the orange man, but I, I saw just around me how the industry had responded. I mean, it was just so, it's like this thick, inescapable cloak of Trump derangement where you couldn't even go to an audition without somebody bringing up, oh my God, did you see this headline? Yada, yada, yada. So I think, you know, th- th- there was already a a fever pitch in terms of the socio-political environment. And then 2020 hit and, uh, you know, we all saw the video of George Floyd, um, that original video anyway, and we were all disturbed by it. And and the the industry's response was just was swift. And I got I was getting these emails and these surveys from places where I had worked and they were telling me that I that we know you felt excluded. We know you've been hurt. We know you've been suffering. And, you know, and, and it's mostly white progressives. I call them the blue bourgeoisie who are telling me, you know, I mean, I've been acting since I was 17. That's uh, over 20 years. And not once has anyone 
white or black or any other race or creed told me that I that I couldn't succeed or that, that I didn't belong. In fact, I've been told the opposite the entire time. So on one hand, I was like, okay, there's this huge sort of race panic that's happening. And at the same time, there was all of the, um, the uh, coronavirus stuff. And, you know, it, it was weird because I've never been any sort of um, activist. I mean, I, I often joke about people who call themselves actorvists, you know, they, they literally use that term actorvists. It's so uh, pretentious and snobbish and ridiculous. But, you know, for me, it, it was pretty simple. I mean, for one, I mean, I caught the disease in late 2020, right before the vaccines were being rolled out. But I think the, the larger thing for me was just the principle of the thing. You know, how can your employer or the government tell you that you um, that you must be forced to take this new product into your body in order to be not just to be eligible to work, but just to go to the gym, go to the museum, go to, uh, you know, bars and restaurants. You know, it, it's it's it was so unconscionable to me. And what's what's kind of funny about it is that at the same time, this whole race panic was happening. You know, it's it's being these mandates are being fomented by people or enforced by people who have been spending generations telling black people that every arm of our society is, you know, is flexing against them because they're black. That includes the the medical and health establishments. And yet they're expecting black people just to roll up their sleeves and trust the same government and the same medical establishment um, to just do their bidding. So, you know, there were a lot of things that were going on that, that just said, you know, I, I can't, I, I, I can't do this and take part of this. And, uh, but it makes me think, you know, if I can, a quick story, um, back in 2007, I was working at this place called Williamstown, a theater festival up in the Berkshires, which is a very, you know, well-known, uh, theater festival that happens every summer. And, um, there was this, uh, you know, and it's, it's a really big deal to go there. They, they go to all the grad schools to get, um, you know, to audition actors from all these fancy programs. And like the one I was in to fill in smaller roles and to take workshops and everything, you know, it's a really big deal for a young actor in their career. And uh, so there were 24 of us from these schools and, um, and three of us happened to be black. And um, over the course of the summer there, they had these four younger directors who were assisting the major directors on the, on the main stage shows, but they were each, these younger directors were each going to direct two um, smaller one act plays in the smaller theater there over the course of the summer. So for the first round of plays, we did these auditions and we're all in the room together. And, and, uh, you know, and, and it's funny because at the time I would probably describe myself as more woke back then than I am now. So I had this sort of cynicism already I saw all the directors, all four of them were white. So, you know, I literally hit pause. I, you know, touched my finger between my, my eyes. I was like, okay, hit, hit, hit pause and just do your work. And, um, you know, I did my piece and, you know, even days later, there were people who weren't even there saying, hey, man, we heard about the monologue you did. Like, man, we're so, the, the director at the time, uh, the artistic director at the time got a man named Roger Rees, who if you look him up, you'll, you'll recognize him, but wonderful, wonderful man who was like, we're so happy to have you here. We heard about your piece, you know? And yet um, for this first round of plays, not a single one of the black performers were were called back. And it would have been one thing if it were just me, you know, but like, you know, there was another guy named Jordan, another guy named Ramah, and we, none of us were similar at all. I mean, Jordan was sort of a more, uh, more effeminate gay man. Ramah was sort of a, a sort of portly um, um, every man who had a wonderful presence on stage, just a really sort of light um, comedic, but very sort of um, a 
big heart, just a wonderful performer. Um, so we were all different. And, and, you know, and for example, one of the plays that got cast, um, there was a gay character and the, the gay character ended up being cast with a straight white male, while Jordan, who is gay, you know, wasn't even called back for the part. So it was stuff like that. And, and I noticed, you know, and once word got out what had happened, um, people were, you know, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe, I had no idea, you know, the, the directors were embarrassed. The other actors were like, man, this is messed up, man, this is messed up. But no one would say anything. The directors were embarrassed that they didn't call any of the black people back or what were, were they embarrassed about? Yeah, they, they, that, that, that's exactly it. You know okay. what I mean? Because they, they were freaking out that uh, they were going to be, you know, called racists or whatever. But this is also, you know, in a summer where this particular season, um, myself and Jordan were cast in a main stage show, but we were just sort of, you know, in the ensemble of this really bad musical, like sort of in the background. Um, and then Rama had the biggest speaking part of all of us, but he was playing a butler in a play starring Allison Janney and, um, and some other people. So the, the roles that were available for black performers, um, you know, meanwhile, my white counterparts were doing multiple roles. They're starring alongside um, these major actors, working with these major directors. And, um, and then you had some of the administrative staff who were saying that, that playwrights like Susan Laurie Parks, for instance, um, who's a notable black playwright, um, you know, would probably never get a main stage production um, at, at Williamstown. And so at the time, I'm like, I'm like, what the hell is going on up here? You know, like this is this is this is crazy. I got all these like mediocre um, white performers, sorry, who are getting these opportunities. And then, you know, guys like me are sitting back here, you know, being backup dancers and not get, not even getting used in plays. And of course, for, for the second round of auditions, for the second round of one act plays, then who was at the top of every one of these callback lists was all the black performers. But by then it was already tainted. And, um, you know, it's like, am I here because I'm the best for the part or am I here to make white progressives feel better about themselves? And and this was all back in 2007. This is all still back. in This is 2000. This is 2007. Okay, right. Okay. And, um, you know, and it was funny because that, that, that was a huge turning point for me in terms of my ideology towards race. Maybe we can get into that later. But the bigger the broader point relating back to the mandates and everything was that nobody was going to say anything. Mm. And yet I'm you know, I went to talk to the um, the artistic director. I'm talking to um, I forget what, what her name was. You know, so I'm I'm actually going out and saying this is not this is this is not OK. But I realized that, you know, my colleagues weren't going to say anything. Everyone else would in hushed tones be like, oh, you know, that's this is really bad. This is messed up. Like, this is not fair, yada, yada, yada. But nobody was saying anything. That sort of, you know, I'm reminded of that story now when I think, you know, these people come to me privately and they say, hey, man, good for you for standing up and saying it, you know, but I don't want to I don't want to commit. I have one former friend, former friend say this to me. I don't want to commit suicide, i.e. professional mm -hmm. suicide, yeah. i.e., which is what I did. So nobody will stick their necks out for anything. And um, I realize, unfortunately, that that happens to be the case for the majority of the population, it seems. It was really the, the principle of the thing then with the mandates. It wasn't so much that you were like really scared of side effects of the vaccine or whatever. You just Oh, well, that was well, well, that was part of it, too. Right. Because, I mean, how how would we know? You know what I mean? And and the irony is that you see these prominent these prominent Democrats like Andrew Cuomo, the disgraced former governor of New York, um, our current president and vice president were each saying, oh, I don't I don't trust these vaccines because they're Trump vaccines. Yeah. But magically, of course, they become safe and effective as soon as the uh, the, the White House changes hands. Right. You know, but there was already data coming out about, you know, if you had immunity uh, from prior infection, which I had, but if also if you were a, a male, 
under the age of 40 and you'd already had the disease and you'd taken, you know, these, these mRNA products that you had a higher risk of heart damage. And me, you know, I have a history of high blood pressure. My family has a history of high blood pressure. There's a whole side of my family because I never knew my father that I have, that I'm not familiar with. So I don't know what I'm taking that might interact with, uh, with uh, you know my particular genetic makeup or my, I just I just don't know anything. You know, there's so many things that are unknown. And like I said before, I've already caught the disease. And if we're talking about the spike protein, which is a you know a very dangerous substance, and we're talking about how it does organ damage, then why, if my body has already cleared the spike protein, would I introduce a product into my body which is going to induce my body to create more spike protein? Like there's a logic to it. I'm not saying no one else should take it for themselves. I'm saying it's not the right choice for me for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I'm not some advocate against vaccines or some activist, but uh, but that definitely was a part of it. It's like, you know, we don't know what's in, you know, mm -hmm. what this thing's going to do. It's not been out long enough, you know, so and and it was weird because I'm, I'm I'm being viewed as an extremist for my for exercising caution. That's how you know things are backwards. Yeah. Yeah. And so how how did that work? You go into I don't know if you had a role or something and they were like, all right, everybody get the vaccine. And you were like, I'm not. And then they're like, okay, you're cut from this. Or what was the process of like, what was the unraveling of everything kind of coming to a halt when it came to your career? Well, early, early in March, 2021, that's when, you know, I, I was getting these, uh, this back when I had a manager, um, I was getting these availability checks and, uh, you know, the theaters were just starting to open up and tip, dip their toes in the water. And you would get these really weird emails about like, you know, this theater is doing this musical and um, they want to know if you've been vaccinated already or if you plan on getting vaccinated. And, you know, at a point, you know, and I and I commend probably my, my ex-managers want like the one person that I, I don't have any hard feelings for because she never bulldogged me or never, you know, was aggressive about, you know, take this thing. But I just I said, you know, I sent her an email. I was like, I'm not I'm not taking this thing. It's just weird to see everybody. uh uh, with such animus against people like me, but I'm just, I'm not taking it. I don't want to take it. And you're not going to bully me <laughs> into mm -hmm. taking it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember at one point I, I posted something online on Twitter about um, Actors' Equity Association, which is the the union for stage actors, which, you know, had ha had been at the sort of at the forefront of pushing these ridiculous pandemic protocols. And, you know, they actually got mad at me because I said they were forcing people to take the vaccine, but they created an environment in which it was impossible for people to work. They made it a moral imperative to take the damn thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so while technically they left it up to the producers and theaters to, to as to whether or not they were going to instill the mandates, they, they pretty much, I mean, they were conducting surveys and, and town halls where it, it was accepted as axiomatic that people were going to take this, uh, this vaccine. It was very, very, very strange, but over time, um, as as it happens, the phone call stopped, the offer stopped coming in, the audition stopped coming in, and then eventually they just, uh, you know, my management just dropped me from um, from their their client roster. At the same time, you know, then probably maybe a year later, you know, I was invited on for some um, theater podcast, and it was like. <laughs> And I remember that this this man who ran the podcast, I think his partner was talking about, oh, you sure you want to have him on? Are you mm. sure? So by that point, I, I realized that my name was already sort of blackened, yeah. um, so to speak, uh, metaphorically speaking, <laughs> um, in, in, in the minds of of these people. And, uh, you know, and the entertainment industry and the theater in particular is just very, very um you know, it's just very closed. And uh, so it was and, all just word of mouth, people being like, he doesn't have the vaccine. Don't call him. Don't whatever. Is that well, it's not even well. Well, it's not word of mouth. You know, I mean, because I'm actually I'm going on, you know, like podcasts and talking about it. I mean, I was on Dr. Drew's show. 
when you were first saying like, I'm not going to get the vaccine at the very beginning before you got dropped or, or were you already doing the podcast before your management dropped you? Like you were kind of already speaking out. Uh, against no, this. no. Yeah. Well, it's so weird cause I don't consider it speaking out. Um, but I just, um, you know, there was no big publicity about it. I just, uh, you know, I just knew that I wasn't going to, going to take it. And, um, you know, the, I don't know, like I said before, like I'm not some activist or anything. Right. I wasn't campaigning against it. I just, you know, I just was saying that I'm not going to, going to take it. And then over time, it just, uh, as I kept airing my views, cause then at the same time, this is why it's all been kind of weird. You know, my, my Twitter following, uh, I guess my reach kept growing. So I guess my opinions became far more widespread and, and it was very clear that, um, because it wasn't the vaccines initially. It, it, for me, it was more the entire response to the pandemic that I was speaking out about. And, um, you know, how it was, you know, we shouldn't be closing schools down. I mean, I'm an atheist. Like, we shouldn't be closing churches down. You know, we're going to cause this massive economic disruption and everything. And then the mandates were on top of that. So it was all sort of a part of a, a broader thing. But the But I think the mandates and the vaccines became like the biggest sort of lightning rod for controversy. And uh, so, you know, there, there wasn't any sort of specific whisper campaign or whatever. I think it was just a matter of, you know, A, even outside of the medical stuff. I mean, I was appearing on, you know, podcasts like Tim Pool and Trigonometry and, um, and others. And, you know, that, that's, that's, that's tantamount to being a Nazi right. in, in the minds of a lot of these people, <laughs> yeah. I think. So, you know, I was already kind of becoming persona non grata, I think. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so <clears throat> now you talk a lot, I mean, we've hit on the vaccine stuff, but you talk a lot about like how people don't take, the arts are ignored and that there's a lot of like kind of moral corruption within the industry, within Hollywood, um, that kind of thing. Was that something that you were, that you were thinking about and aware of before all this, were you like, wow, these people I'm surrounded by live empty, you know, morally corrupt lives? Or was this something that now you're kind of reflecting now that you're kind of out of the box in some ways you sort of stepped away from something that maybe was toxic or bad for the soul anyways, or am I putting words in your mouth? Well, I think that, um, I mean, when you're talking about the entertainment industry, I mean, you, you, you know, it, it attracts a lot of misfits and, and broken people. And, you know, I, I include myself um, um, among them. And, but it wasn't always, as insane. I mean, I, I think that I, my sort of awakening happened around 2014 with all the, um, the Mike Brown stuff and just, um, seeing how the, you know, the news lies and, you know, these politicians, we know they lie, but, but again, like a lot of people, I mean, I was working and I was happy and I was moving up in my career. I didn't think too much about it, but over time, you know, I began to notice these sort of progressive buzzwords began, you know, uh, um, uh, creeping in and then Trump got elected and, you know, people just lost their freaking minds. But even, but for a long time, I began to feel like an outlier anyway. I mean, I would say how I, you know, I, I stopped going to shows for a long time just because I felt like I felt, I didn't feel like they were making shows for me. I felt like they were making shows for themselves, i.e. for shows which appealed to a mostly white, but, but largely sort of, um, progressive outlook. And I was looking at some Pew data the other day 
from a few years ago. And, um, and it was really interesting, you know, it's about the political landscape. And even among registered Democratic voters, people who describe themselves as very liberal um, are about are about 15%. Meanwhile, people who call themselves conservative or very conservative are about 14%. So you're talking about a, a minority of people who run this entire industry. And that's and so they make things in their own image. And it's just it just it's an image which isn't shared by I guess I call them normies or normal people or civilians, as I sometimes refer to them, people who aren't in the industry, the entertainment industry. Um, but in terms of, you know, morality, I mean, you're already dealing with people who have loose morals that, you know, they just have more liberal views on these kinds of things, whether it be sex um, and sexuality. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing a piece right now about how the theater is failing. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons that the industry is so left is that a lot of conservative minded people just kind of stay out of it because they're you know, they might be more Christian or they might be more reserved personally. And, you know, when you have an industry that's full of, um, um, you know, sexual minorities and, and people who just don't have the same kinds of moral restrictions, not necessarily that's bad. It's just that it's actually a useful tool if you don't, if you're less bound by moral strictures, because it makes you, especially as an actor, and as a writer, it makes you sort of more flexible because you're more sensitive to a wider array of human experience. You're not so tied down. You're not so um, stodgy. You're not so restricted or, or constricted in your mores and in your and in your views and opinions. So um, that's not to say that any sort of abuse is excusable. I mean, when the hashtag Me Too stuff was going down, I mean, you know, a lot of it honestly was um, about animus towards men in general, but at the same time, you know, the entertainment industry for all of its moral prescriptions for the rest of society, I mean, they do let a lot of stuff fly. They, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, it's a very hierarchical sort of industry where people can kind of, they're looking at who they can abuse and who they, <laughs> and who they can get away with. Um, you know, I've, a lot of people, they sort of, you know, if they want to hire a major talent, um, you know, if that person is a name, they really have to weigh, you know, well, I've heard this about, you know, they might have a temper, they might be kind of a diva. Is it really worth it to deal with this person? Um, you know, they're going to bring a lot to this role, but there's a lot of baggage there as well. So people, you know, they make these kinds of weird equations. And I think sort of it, you know, you just, it comes with the territory. You're dealing with artists, you're dealing with creatives. People who are a bit more tempestuous than the average uh, than the average person. People who are more mercurial. It's part of our jobs as actors, especially to be um, to be vulnerable, to be um, sort of open vessels. Some might say open wounds. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it's also our job to. Um, I mean, I had a, a teacher my first year of conservatory. Um, you know, this is at a point I'm in my early twenties and just feeling all the things, mm -hmm. and he. You know, like I would read a headline, for instance, you know, and, and burst into tears. I mean, that's how, I mean, wow. even, even our teacher, a woman named Zelda Fitchhandler, who, you know, may she rest in peace. She really was a titan of the American theater and really changed my, my perspective in my life in a lot of ways. But uh, she, even she remarked on our class uh, of 18. She was like, you guys are really a really cryy class. You, cry, you guys cry a lot. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's also our responsibility to manage and control those emotions or, or, or that openness and to use it in the service of our craft. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's, um, and so, you know, it, it's, it can be tough. And also, you know, we have to maintain a childlike kind of innocence and openness, um, in order to do our work as well. And, you know, it, it just, it, it's, 
it's tough because I mean, it's tough to answer the question about. I mean, you you want to be good people. You want to treat others well and 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 treat them with courteous uh, courteousness and respect and professionalism. I mean, I think we all want that. Um, yeah. And there are issues with abuse um, of 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 people. And I remember talking to some of my female coworkers about you know when the Me Too stuff came out and and you know especially the men that they'll say stuff and they do stuff. But uh, you know, but then at the same time, I mean, it's sort of a digression, but. Um, you know, I was told as a man to shut up, but you know, I, but at that time I had had my ass slapped or groped by five different times by four different women, three of whom were married. Mm. And, you, you know, and at the same time, I'm dealing with gay guys saying all kinds of crazy shit to me yeah. as well, but I was told to shut up because I'm a man. Mm. So, you know, so there's all these, so they, they present themselves as, as moral people, but you know, it's only within very, very, uh, very strict boundaries. But, uh, I know I strayed really far no, away it's... from your question, but I think I just, you know, I, I I kept my mouth shut for a while because, you know, you could see the hypocrisy or the, the lack of logic and common sense. Um, you could see them going down these rabbit holes, but, you know, you're, but you're working. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a field where unemployment is the rule and not the exception. And, you know, the better you get and the more you rise, the more money you're making. And finally, you can stop being broke for, you know, for your life. So there's a lot of incentives to, even if you see stuff, you just kind of be quiet and kind of turn the other cheek because, you know, like you said, you're, you're making money and you're flying around the country and staying in nice hotels and meeting fancy people. And people are telling you you're pretty yeah. and you're special and you're talented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's just a crazy, crazy kind of world. Do you get people coming to you now who kind of almost, maybe they're young and up and coming, but they're not part of this progressive ideology and they want advice and they're not sure how to, can someone who's just sort of like, a centrist level-headed person get into acting and succeed without feeling like they're, they're, they're selling their soul in some way. Um, I don't think so. No. Um, I honestly don't think so. Um, you know, if they are, they'll have to keep to themselves. You know, there's just um, like, it's a very weird feeling if you're in like a rehearsal studio or you're on set somewhere. Um, as a matter of fact, I have, I have a couple Give me a couple of good examples of this. I was working on a play. We, we were doing the world premiere of uh, of, of Clue. Mm. So it was a, a show based on on the movie. Yeah. And it was a hysterical show. I mean, it, uh, Sally Struthers was in it. I don't know if people who remember her, but just this hilarious, hilarious actress. Um, and But again, this is during the Trump years. And everyone was going insane. And uh, every 10 minutes or so, either the, either the director or the lead actor would stop and just be like, can you believe what what Trump just said now? Yada, yada, yada. And I'm just like, I just want to do this yeah. effing play. Mm -hmm. Like, it's Clue on stage. I'm playing <laughs> Professor Plum for God's sake. This is ridiculous. Can we just do this? And at one point during a, during a break, um, this, this director, he just goes, you know, a lot of conservative women, um, they vote Republican because they're afraid of their husbands. And... I just, I heard that and I was like, that to me sounds like the most sexist, reductive yeah. thing I ever said. But his wife is right there and she just nods. She goes, mm-hmm. But then like a year or a year or two after that, I'm working on um, this Fox show called Proven Innocent, which is, which is, which got canceled. But there's a lot of New York, New York actors on that show that I'd known. So I, you know, I was, you know, talking them up and chatting with them and um, I'm guest starring. And so between uh, takes, um, you know, we're not being used at the moment. And I'm, you know, having a conversation with this actress whom I respect a lot in terms of her work and her career. But she said the same thing. She goes, well, you know, it's, you know, a lot of um, re Republican women, they vote that way because they're afraid of their husbands. So this is a thing that people just believe. 
and like um, you're afraid that their husbands you know, and, are going to beat them is that what they're saying like you better vote for trump woman, i think girl. that i think <laughs> right that that's the implication okay. there's no there's no possibility that these women might have issues with abortion like they might be pro-life mm -hmm. they might you know they might because they are married have different views on taxes maybe they homeschool their kids yeah. maybe they have different views about the value of, you know what, what's wrong with the public education system none of these practical considerations ever enter their minds it's just that they're afraid of their husbands you know what i mean so it's it's but but when you're you know, when you're on set and you're in, <laughs> when you're in these situations, and again, you know, everything is racist, everything is sexist, right? I mean, gosh, I remember I was doing this one rehearsal for this concert that I was doing, and you know, I'd made some tepid remark about uh, Joe Biden's obvious uh, um, mental deficiencies. It was safe to make those jokes then, and um, this guy goes into this rant, and at one point he goes, "Gosh!" And then there's these there's these these brain dead independents. And at that point, I think I had left the, the I deregistered from the Democratic Party just uh, maybe a year before that. And so I'm sitting to myself, I'm sitting thinking to myself, and of course, everyone around you is, is agreeing with this nonsense. Yeah. So it makes you uh, it makes you brain dead to not automatically swallow what the Democrats or the Republicans say. It's 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 completely backward logic. And um, and, and I say if anyone who if they want to succeed, they have to keep to they have to keep their opinions to themselves if those opinions don't don't align with this sort of uh, progressive quote unquote progressive zeitgeist. I mean that's that's the only safe way to advance forward and upward, and that's you know that it's a, that's a reflection of the bigotry of um, of these progressives. So people who aren't in the in the progressive camp, do you sort of accuse them of? I should say us because I'm one of them who's not in that progressive ideology of ignoring the arts of not doing enough to fix some of these issues that you're talking about? What is the solution? Is it just, I mean, or like people, groups, organizations like the Daily Wire who are like, hey, we're going to make our own movies now, but they can only crank out one movie a year or something like that. How do you even, Angel Studios, how do they compete with Hollywood? How do somebody like me, a, a normie, if you will, help this battle of kind of trying to fix the arts if they can be fixed? I mean, yeah, it's, it's a very, very complicated issue. Um, on one hand, if you're talking about movies, I think there are there are brighter prospects there because everyone's making their own movies now. I shot a I shot an indie I shot an indie film recently out in Athens, Georgia. They just built a brand new studio out there. You know, I mean, I'm, and also in Atlanta. I mean, Tyler Perry has his own has his own you know studio complex, um, but the technology in terms of like cameras are are out there. Um, the the knowledge in terms of um, the technical knowledge and expertise, you know, sound techs, um, you know, electricians, carpenters, builders, camera operators, these kinds of things. Um, this kind of knowledge is out there and people, again, can make their own stuff. So I think in terms of indie film um, and, if, and again, Angel Studios is a good example of that. Um, I think we're about to see sort of a, a renaissance, maybe a golden age, because there's so much um, quote unquote content. I hate that word, but. <laughs> You know, but there's so much potential and people are making their own stuff. So I think that is going to be fine. I think as far as the bigger studio systems are concerned, I mean, maybe a, an outfit like the Daily Wire can compete uh, at some point someday. But my issue with with outlets like that, and this is I also spoke to um, uh, Winston Marshall, who was ousted from the uh, Mumford and Sons band mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because he dared to tweet about a book about uh, about Antifa. Yes. You know, I, I agree with him because, I mean, 
you know, we don't want a quote unquote conservative art movement. And for me, I don't think there is going to be a conservative art movement because for all their bitching about the decline of aesthetics and the decline of our culture, they're they're remarkably uninterested in establishing their own cultural institutions. Yeah, Daily Wire might be one um, one outlier in, in that sense. But, you know, even that stuff, I look at it and it's just, you know, a bunch of Jesus stories and, you know, I mean, or a, a lot of their content is, I mean, they don't, that's not all of their um, cinematic content to be fair, but um, you know, it's, I think it's going to have the same kind of problems with having a wholly sort of progressive um, movement. It's just going to be ideologically rigged to, in one direction by people who just frankly aren't interested, uh, aren't interested in the arts. And I've spoken to this uh, about this to uh, other prominent conservatives like Heather mm-hmm. McDonald, um, I've spoken to Douglas Murray about this, the best-selling author. Um, I spoke. I was on uh, a call with Andrew Claven a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, "Man, I've been talking. I've been talking to my conservative friends about this yeah, for yeah. decades." Camille Paglia is another one. Um, you know, it's brilliant liberal. I think actually liberal intellectual who's been talking for decades now about how um, Americans in general and conservatives in particular need to pay more attention to the arts, but they won't do it because in their minds, I think. Um, the arts don't produce anything tangible, but at the same time, they'll bitch about um, the decline in aesthetics and everything from music to uh, to art to architecture. But then they don't, you know, they just they 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 say the arts are worthless, and they they look at liberals as a bunch of weirdos and over there who, you know, bring me my coffee basically. That like that's how they look at it. There's this huge denigration, um, and you know, it's a shame because. You know, when I look back at some of our, our great American playwrights like Arthur Miller or the, or, or the great August Wilson, I mean, he was writing plays. They were writing plays about working yes. people. I mean, August Wilson, especially, I mean, his plays, his work resonates with everybody, even though he was writing about specifically black people and they're black people um, who, you know, in every decade of the 20th century who are, you know, struggling in some way. And they, you know, they're, they're normal people dealing with extraordinary problems. You know, I mean, Lorraine Hansberry's um, A Raisin in the Sun still resonates because it's about a family um, trying to trying to make it. I mean, it's in very specific circumstances, but anyone can resonate with a family trying trying to better their station in life. But, you know, they're not rich people. And, um, you know, they're just they're, they're regular working people trying trying to make it. So, and and I find in these industries now again I call them I call them the blue bourgeoisie but it's this very sort of again I go back to this Pew data which talked about how uh, you know progressives they're largely uh, they're largely white largely affluent largely educated with four year degrees or more so their sensibilities are the ones that are that are informing these cultures and their sensibilities are being carried further and further away from you know actual working people and you know i i sympathize with people who are actually leftists who actually care about um you know like like the working uh, poor the working class and everything but they seem to be uh, in short supply so on one hand uh, you know just backtracking again on one hand you have i think the indie market film is going indie film market is going to um see a big resurgence in the next few years. Um, I don't think there's going to be some kind of, you know, conservative arts movement, you know, and there are alternative institutions. I mean, you know, you, you, they just, you can't get them to care about, you know, orchestra or ballet or theater. But on the other hand, who, who do we have left to trust? It's people on the left. And what are they doing right now? They're destroying it. So, you know, the, and some, I was asked before about, you know, should people, 
um, infiltrate these institutions and change it from the inside, or should they build new institutions? And my answer to that is that uh, there's right now, I, I and I alluded to this a, a few minutes ago, but there's no incentive um, if you're in the system to change anything. Because look, if you're if you're a broke actor and you finally hit that big job, and you know you never have to work again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and your your career is kind of set and your face is everywhere and you're winning awards and you're getting all this positive press, um, you, you know, and you, you, I mean, it's a great, great job. It's a great job. You're not digging ditches. Yeah. You're not, you know, you're not, uh, you, you know, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful privileged gig. And there are some actors like Christian Bale or Denzel Washington who understand how privileged they are to be in that position. But of course, I mean, who wouldn't yeah. want that kind of job? And who, and if you're in that position, what, I mean, who would jeopardize that? So there's, there's, I mean, there, there's no incentive for anybody to speak up and say, well, actually, I think that uh, humans are sexually dimorphic <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and it's, it's okay if people vote Republican. I mean, that's, that's their conviction. That's their, their thing. Like they're not evil. I mean, there's, there's a, a group of actors. I, I can't even talk about them. I can't name the name. It's like fight club. You can't Ugh. talk about them. It's, it's an invite only group, but they say, do not mention us by name or any of our members because they know that if they are outed as conservatives or Republicans or whatever, that, they, that they're going to jeopardize their careers. So there's no incentive on the inside to change it. So the only solution that I can see, the only viable solution that I can see is for genuinely like heterodox, maybe, you know, probably liberal left leaning people build, you know, their own institutions. And I think the good thing is that we live in an era now, and I've been on this for years, thinking about this for years, just need more investment and more people to, you know, give us resources and money to, to figure it out. But, you know, we not only have the, um, we're in an era where, you know, stars don't really matter as much as, as, as right. they used to, where um, I think people are more open to, uh, in general, are more open to a more diverse array of perspectives. I think we're in an era where, you know, you have a lot more sophisticated laymen who are listening to audiobooks and long form podcasts and and um, and educating themselves um, on a variety of topics that, that they find interesting. Um, and so I think there's a huge, huge untapped market of people that can be reached now through the power of technology. And if a, and if a bunch of like heterodox artists got together and, you know, hey, conservatives like hire hire artists like, OK, the, the ones that are actually interested in this stuff. Like, you know, invest your money and support the artists who want to create um, really, you know, really good work. And, um, you know, and now we have the the technology to share it with the world and, um, you know, new pricing models, new subscription models, uh, you know, crowdfunding. There's all kinds of options available now to kind of finance this stuff, um, which I don't think the mainstream um theater industry or entertainment industry. I mean, I think they kind of sneer at that stuff now. Oh, it's just YouTube. It's just online. But, you know, I mean, Joe Rogan is just a podcaster. Tim Pool is just a podcaster. You know, Steve Crowder, I mean, I don't watch his stuff, but I mean, he's just a, a podcaster. And yet these these people are all, you know, Jordan Peterson is just a professor or a psychologist or whatever. So these people are, but these people like Jordan are selling out arenas right. across um across the world and touring and, do, and doing all this other stuff. So there, I think there's a, um, there's a possibility that if people are willing to put in the work and build their own followings and build their own platforms, um, you know, I think about people like Mr. Beast, for instance, the YouTuber who is turning down multi-billion dollar um, offers to buy his business. I mean, I'm like, it's only, it's only a matter of time to me before he begins making movies, yeah. like actual yeah. feature length films, you know? Um, and 
or like, you know, the, the Logan and Jake Paul for whatever one may think about them personally. I mean, Logan Paul just signed with the uh, WWE. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and these guys are selling out pay-per-views. So there's a whole other um, realm now where the sort of traditional gatekeepers of who gets to be famous and who gets to be picked and chosen um, to, to have a career and who gets to be feted and, uh, and fellated by the entertainment media industrial complex, who, who wins awards and everything like that sort of old uh, media machine is dying, I think, and it's losing relevance. There's a whole new sort of media, um, uh, alternative media, I guess, new media that um, that is uh, arising. But the problem right now in terms of the arts is that there's not a lot of people who are like me who have the training and pedigree and the background experience to um, really make a huge splash. And so that's sort of, I think, my my main focus right you're now. Because you're trying to help and coach up people so that there's more uh, there's more Clifton Duncans out there? Or what what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I'm still Clifton Duncan. I'm still alive. I'm still here. And, uh, you know, I still plan to be active and still in, and to continue working and creating. Um, but, you know, I, I call it assembling Avengers. And so I have people over time who come to me and they're like, I'm a lighting designer. I'm a set designer. I'm, you know, I work in clown. I'm a, I'm a, 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 a singer. I'm an opera singer who was canceled because of my beliefs. I'm an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm a writer, yada, yada, yada. So there are people out there. I mean, Nashville is a, is a place where a lot of ex Broadway people okay. are right now because they're sick of the nonsense. Um, and they're, they're doing things out there. So, you know, I mean, some some really, really fine people, some fine artists are out there um, who are building stuff. So I, I think, you know, as L.A. and New York, who sort of have this snobbish monopoly, I think, um, or they believe they have this snobbish monopoly on uh, on culture and sophistication. Well, those cities are killing themselves now and people are moving elsewhere. Um, um, and, you know, and I think there's a lot more people who are who are interested in and intrigued by and invested in the arts and, and in great art. And like I said, cause I always say, you know, you don't need a PhD or an Ivy, an Ivy league degree or, you know, a high IQ or whatever to know how something makes mm-hmm. you feel. And that's the power of the arts is that they tap into the emotions and it's, it's more unifying than politics. It's more unifying than religion. It's one of the few tools right now that, that we have where we can actually bring people together. But unfortunately, our arts institutions are are filled with people who are intent on dividing us. So, so yeah, I still want to, you know, I got a lot of ideas and fire in the tank. But at the same time, down the line, uh, you know, it's important to establish not only new, um, not only new cultural institutions, but also schools, mm-hmm. training programs, um, these kinds of things to, you know, really, as you were saying, build up the next generation of people um, and bring people together to uh, to create, you know, just to create great work. And it doesn't have to be, you know, of any particular ideological bent. You know, it's like if I were to show conservatives a play, you know, who have issues with homosexuality, I, I can't remember the name of the play, but there was a brilliant play that I sent in a really bad audition for uh, via self-tape years ago. Um, And it was set in Uganda where it's illegal to be gay, literally illegal to be gay. And um, it was about these two boys who, 18, I think, who who are in love. And it's this sort of taut psychological suspense, um, suspenseful thriller of how all these institutions are kind of closing in on these on these boys who, you know, they're teenage boys just, you know, discovering love and discovering romance and life, but they're not allowed to be themselves and be with Mm -hmm. each other. And, uh, and, you know, and I thought it's just a a wonderful, wonderful play. 
um, you know, at the same time, it's like, is there a, a Denai Gurira is another great, uh, great example. Uh, people know her from Walking Dead or Black Panther, but she's also, she, she began her career. Um, she's a powerful actress, but she began as a writer. That's where she kind of got her first real big um, um, boost. Um, and she wrote a play called The Convert, which I auditioned for at a bunch of different places and never got any. And I was really, and I was really disappointed, but it's set in the late 1800s in Zimbabwe and now Zaire, or excuse me, Zaire, now Zimbabwe. I might've gotten those backwards. I apologize for my African <laughs> listeners out there, but, um, but it, you know, it's set, it, it's, it, the convert in question, the, the titular character is this young girl who is sort of caught between, you know, do we allow these British colonialists to come in and change our culture and change who we are? And, and, Rather than having some weird polemic against colonization or against white people or Europeans, Denai is a smart enough writer. She's really good. And she explores the issue from a variety of perspectives. So, you know, through drama. So there's characters who are saying like, hell yeah, come in, bring it all in. I'm gonna make money. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna build my life, yada, yada, yada. And then there's characters like, uh, like her cousin who are saying, no, we have to protect who we are and our people and our culture. You know, the very, very sort of radical point of view. And in the middle of it, you have this character who is caught between these different sort of dramatic forces. And that's what people want yeah. to see. They want to see tension. They want to see drama. They want to see conflict. They want to see relationships. You know, they want to see these these human stories that, that are explored. I mean, another example, Sizwe Banzi is Dead by a South African playwright, Athol Fugard, featuring um, the late Winston Tashona, may he rest in peace, and, uh, and John Connie, who people will know as uh, Black Panther's dad in the films. Um, you know, they, they won an, uh, a Tony Award in the 1970s for this play. And it's, you know, these these people living under apartheid and they don't have to preach to you about how, how apartheid is bad. It merely shows you the lives of the people living under this regime. And that's what's impactful. That's what's powerful. It's not this, you know, you don't have to hit people over the head with this didactic messaging. Um, you know, you can have stories, uh, you know, that explore you know, transgenderism and, uh, you know, and homosexuality, these other sort of things that, uh, that I think the broader population isn't that familiar with. Um, but you can do it in a way that, um, that gets to the humanity, the core humanity of the issue. And maybe you'll, maybe you'll change some minds, you know what I mean? And, and that's not that you're setting out to do that, but, you know, we can't deny there can be social utility and, 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 um, in dramatic work, but right now it's just, it's just saturated with one thing and um, and and audiences are responding in kind uh, to it. And these businesses are collapsing now because do of you it. think audiences as far as like what what the normies, what the civilians can do, because I assume when you say like conservatives don't care about the arts, you're talking about the conservative leadership class, like people who have the power, money and influence to actually build something and start something. If you're just some if you're just Farmer John, you know out in Oklahoma somewhere with your cows, you can turn off Disney. You know, you, you're not going to subscribe to Disney anymore. You're not going to subscribe to Netflix anymore. Maybe you can do some of these other things and movies. Like, I mean, the passion of the Christ is now an older movie, but that was one of the biggest movies ever made. Um, and then you Hacksaw Ridge, which is, which is another, you know, Mel Gibson movie. Very, very successful. American sniper, very successful. So I feel like, the, the consumer is kind of voting with their dollar and trying to tell Hollywood, mm -hmm. we like this kind of stuff. When Roseanne's show came back on, right? When she was still on it before she got ultimately canceled, 
it was very, very successful, very popular. People loved it. Is there something that those of us who are the normies can be doing differently other than just voting with our dollar, turning off our subscriptions to people who don't reflect our values? Because at least for me personally, a lot of times I hear this like, oh, conservatives don't care. You know, classical liberals don't care. And I'm like, I care. I don't know what to do other than not subscribe to Disney, you know? Well, I mean, you know, it's funny because the the sort of, I mean, these, these are very Marxist organizations, right? The people in these entertainment industries and uh, in these arts institutions, and they always talk about profit, 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 but they never talk about the other side of that, which is mm-hmm. losses. And, um, you know, we, as we all know, you can't sustain too many losses without uh, destroying your your business. So voting with, you know, and so the consumer has the power in that uh, in that arena. So yes, absolutely. I would encourage uh, people to keep voting with, with their dollars. But at the same time, you know, I, I also encourage people to to engage in their personal lives and acts of creation, whether it's, you know, writing songs or, you know, drawing, um, you know, it's engaging your creative imagination in some way, just just as a a form of either personal, um, personal therapy, or maybe even spiritual uplift. I mean, I, I say all the time, um, you know, conservatives, they understand the abstract benefits of religion, but then, but, but they sort of tend to ignore the abstract benefits of art. And it's not because they're, you know, deficient in some way. It's like, it's, you know, you mentioned farmers, um, you know, it's like, well, what, you know, or if I'm a plumber or a farmer or something like that, you know, what, what utility would art have in my life? You know what I mean? It's just, it's just not really, it may not be just within my, my mind, like what would I care about Shakespeare or whatever, but I've also done shows where, you know, for inner city high school kids where they, you know, they'll, they'll be loving Shakespeare or even, you know, Bertolt Brecht, who's a notoriously difficult German um, writer whose work is hard to pull off. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's tough because you don't want to um, order people to say, you know, read these books and, and do this and do, you know, and, and engage with this. Um, so I don't know outside of, you know, urging people to try and engage with this material and try to, you know, support your local playhouse, your local symphony, um, you know, or create stuff of your own. I I really think it's incumbent upon artists to, to create work and to not be condescending Mm -hmm. and not hate their audiences. Um, but to, but to create work that, you know, again, explore, I mean, I'm reading a lot of like, um, work from antiquity right now, the ancient Greeks. And it's, and it's hilarious because we're trying to decolonize our, well, quote unquote, decolonize our curriculums Mm -hmm. or whatever, or, you know, we look at them as dead old white men who had nothing to offer, but I'm like, well, no, they had a lot of shit figured (laughs) out (laughs) thousands of years ago. And um, I mean, like Aristotle, he's writing about, um, you know, what makes a great uh, uh, tragedy, a great story. And, you know, I think returning to these kinds of things and um, not not you don't need to have a slavish devotion to it, but, you know, the truth, beauty, goodness, aesthetics, um, you know, and you, you can explore difficult and complex issues. Um, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to say, like, what art should be and what people should mm-hmm. do. I just I guess the best that I can do is to hope that people, yes, you know, Definitely keep on voting with your dollar, um, you know, because it, it, it's working. Um, I mean, in, in the theater right now, uh, <laughs> all these theater, I shouldn't be laughing, but I mean, these places are closing right now and you, you could have seen it coming a mile away, if, if, but they won't, they won't listen. So maybe they'll have to hit rock bottom before they realize that they have to make a change. Um, but 
um, you know, if you can, you know, you can do little things, maybe, maybe read more, read some literature, yeah. you know, I'm reading some Hemingway right now. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, just try to feed your mind and feed your soul, um, as much as you can get in touch with your creative side. And especially, I think for men, especially, yeah. um, this is a, a difficult thing, which is ironic because a lot of the greatest art ever created was created by men. And I think you have to kind of stress that it's not like, it doesn't make you soft right. or, or anything like that. You know, when you, you know, I mean, I mean, Shakespeare might not have been, you know, the most rugged, you know, MF or around, but it, he was still yeah. Shakespeare, you know, um, you know, Monet, Van Gogh, um, hell, even even some of the greatest chefs of all time, you know, Michelangelo, you know, Michelangelo wasn't a chef, but you know what I mean? I'm thinking sculptors, um, you know, if you go to the, the National Museum of Art in Washington and you see up close just the the sheer amount of detail that these men were able to get out of marble the you know the flesh you, know, you look at the pieta the flesh on the baby excuse me not the pieta but the you know but you see these sculptures where the flesh on, on this little child is fatty and somehow it looks like you know the flesh of a baby versus the mother who's you know whose hands are strained and you, you can see the veins popping out of her hands and the, and the bones and how thin she is and every strand of her hair and how the clothes fold across their bodies and how the skin is smooth but aged you know like the 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 amount of vision and work and discipline that it took to create these 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 masterpieces you know i, I think maybe if we can reframe it as like, you know, art is also work because America is a very work-driven society, mm -hmm. right? It's very utilitarian. It's very, you know, we take pride in how hard we work and how little we yeah. sleep. We got all these jobs and yada, especially if you, especially if you're Jamaican, um, you know, so it's, <laughs> so, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's up to people like me, you know, to be communicators and ambassadors for, for the arts and say, no, it, it's honest work. And even if you can't see the tangible benefits of it, you know, I had a conservative friend who said, um, you know, well, what art produces nothing, you know, but uh, she was wrong about that because, you know, it produces nothing maybe of tangible value, but, and yet still people pay millions of dollars for, right. for paintings. Right. But, um, but you can't put a price on, um, you know, if you're, if you're feeling depressed or something and you put on um, some Miles Davis, or you put on, you know, uh, or you're angry, you put on mm -hmm. some Eminem, or, you know, you're, you're going through something, you watch a movie and it kind of helps you know that it's going to be okay. You can't put a price on these types of things. You look at a painting and it, and it brings you to tears or a sculpture that brings you to tears. You know, you, you can't put a price on that, but you know, you've just had some kind of transcendent experience and you've, you've been, you've been put in touch with your deeper emotional self, maybe even your spiritual self, you're nourishing your soul um, when you when you support these things. And I think that, uh, you know, the art that a culture produces is a barometer of um, of its health. Oh, yeah. And I agree with Camille Paglia. I, I agree with Camille Paglia in the sense that, you know, uh, political politics are transient, political power is transient, customs are transient. But, you know, the 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 art that you can that you produce, if it's truly great, uh, can be timeless and live forever. And that's why we still do these Greek plays. We still do these. We still study Shakespeare. We still look at these paintings from these masters, and um, and you know, I mean, I'll I'll listen to Fela Kuti until I die. You know, or Duke Ellington, or or Donnie Hathaway, Luther Vandross, Whitney Houston, all these great people, Ella Ella Fitzgerald, um, even lesser known actors like Ethel Waters. You know, sadly, uh, 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 lesser known, or comedians like Burt Williams, or or dynamic performers like Sammy Davis Jr. These people. Um, 
you know, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, who sadly passed, both of them sadly passed, uh, Paul Robeson, even though I disagree with his politics. Um, you know, you, you listen to Paul Robeson sing Old Man River, and it takes you somewhere. Mm-hmm. It takes you to a place. You know, I'm, I'm getting emotional thinking yeah. about it. And so it's these kinds of things that um, that I think we need to highlight more. And as the as the as the kind of intangible benefits that they that they bring to to their lives. And I, I just wish that we lived in a place or a, a society where our, our artists were less concerned with being activists and more concerned with, um, again, uh, soul food. <laughs> yeah, that's and actually what you said about make your own art. I think a lot of the times people, the way you framed it is actually different than I've heard it because a lot of times people will say, well, then make your own art. And you, and a lot of people hear that and be like, I'm not artistic. Like I, I can't make art, but that's not, you're saying, even if you're not really an artiste, everybody can make, right. you know, you can write a little poem for yourself and not share it with anyone. And that actually will probably help us move in the direction still ultimately more people engaging with art and appreciating art, even if it's very personal and private. Um, that's such a good point. That's exactly it. That, that, that's exactly it. You don't, you don't have to share it, you know, just, but indulging, you know, flexing that muscle. And by the way, you know, I, I know you're going to say some, move on to another, another point, but you know, I think it's interesting that when something that when a craft or a technique is elevated to its highest form, what do we call it? We call it art. Mm-hmm. We watch Michael Jordan play basketball. It's a work of art. You know, someone, you know, I, I look at a, uh, you know, a, a, a circuit board or look at an engine and all how all the parts fit together. It's a work of art. You know, the, the people who design tables, you know, I mean, it, or, or just ornate furniture, you know, that that's that's an art. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of different things that, that you could apply the term art to. But if you but I think if you engage it as art, it sort of lifts it out of the realm of like sort of mere mundane reality. And it, and it takes on a different kind of significance to it. Yeah, that's such a such a good point. I could talk to you about the art and all this for forever and ever, but we're, we're approaching an hour here. So I want to get to my speed round of questions <laughs> for you. It's 10 questions. There's no right or wrong answer. They're just for fun. Um, try to answer them as quickly as you can. And then oh after, after the speed round, we'll give you the stage one more time for your final thoughts. Are you ready? Uh, I don't think so, but that's probably, <laughs> we should probably just go ahead. <laughs> okay. What is the tastiest type of cheese? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really eat cheese. Uh, I don't know. Munster. What is the biggest misconception about you? Um, that I am humorless and uh, that I, I don't know. Oh, and then I'm making a whole lot of money creating content. That's not, that's another one. That's a good one. <laughs> Does pineapple go on pizza? Hell no. Should we tear down statues of slaveholders? I don't think so. I think they should be in museums. Do you celebrate Juneteenth? No. <laughs> Although I do think that I do think that Black History Month should be in June or July. We got the coldest, shortest month. Can you think of all the barbecues we would have if Black History Month was in June <laughs> or July? Come on now. It's it's that's a no-brainer for me. That was actually another another question was Black History Month, yay or nay? So you're you're a fan of Black History Month. Um I mean, I just I don't think about it that much, you know. It's it's I think First of all, you have to define what what black is. You mean black American history? Or are we talking about Nigerian history, Sudanese history, Congolese history, Jamaican history? I mean, you know, black can mean all kinds of things. I haven't given it that much thought. It's just nothing that I really think about. Uh, uh, 
that much. At the same time, it's it's good to to preserve legacy and and to remember history. But um, maybe you know a black a black American history appreciation month. I don't mean I don't know, but why can't that be any month or any yeah. day? Right. So I don't know. How many times have you been in love? Once. Are you afraid of ghosts? No. Black or African-American? Black. And what is the biggest issue facing Black America today, in your opinion? A lack of self-worth. And that's our 10 questions. So you got through them all pretty quickly and uh, pretty wow, eloquently, okay, too. You, you did a good job. So final final thoughts from you. And like I would love for you to include how people can support you. Because like you just said, you're not making a ton of, your, your career has come to a halt. You're not making a ton of money. So where, where can people go to support you? Well, it's very presumptuous to assume that they love me. I uh, think I'm full <laughs> of crap, but, uh, uh, but I have a YouTube channel. It's Clifton Duncan. It's my first and last name. You can find me on Twitter at Clifton A. Duncan. I also have a Substack, which um, <clears throat> I update. I want to update, update it weekly. Um, but, uh, you know, I write articles and essays on, on, on there. It's called the, the State of the Arts, sort of a play on words. Uh, similar to my podcast, it deals with art, entertainment, culture, and society and how they all intersect. Um, what else have I got going? I have a Rumble channel, which um, I was just in contact with with uh, some of the people at Rumble yesterday. Um, you know, they're trying to help me out, uh, and, you know, get my head out of my behind and uh, grow that <laughs> channel. So again, that's Clifton Duncan there on Rumble. And uh, you can sign up at Locals as well, um, which is a really, really great, that's a, sort of a genius platform for creators, I think, um, to really build a connection with their audience and, and for audiences to support uh, creators they love. So check me out there as well. Um, as far as final thoughts go, I, I think it's funny. You mentioned at the very beginning, you know, you called me a heterodox thinker. My, my, my joke is that if we're relying on actors to be thinkers, then we, uh, then we're in some serious trouble. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't have all of the answers. No one has all the answers. You know, I, I think that, um, my biggest thing right now is that I think, um, American society, they're craving unity and they're craving, I, I think we've been battered and bruised, um, especially over the past, almost past decade. And particularly during the the pandemic, I think a lot of people who were sort of paying attention and had their eyes open saw that the, the failure and corruption that, you know, that has manifested in just about every one of our major institutions. And I think that uh, and I see people, you know, I, I'm privileged in a way because I, I I look at conversations that both the left and the right are having, and 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 just in in life when I talk to people, and I and I'm convinced that uh, most of us see the same problems. We just disagree on their solutions, and I think that people agree on most things, and uh, or at least way way more than we're led to believe. And I think one of the tragedies of our time is that everything is so divided right now. People feel as though, um, you know, their neighbor is their enemy. And, you know, I don't want to evoke the memories of the, the late, great Rodney King, but, you know, I wish we could all just get along and, you know, and realize we have bigger fish to fry. You know, our education system is failing. Our infrastructure is failing. Uh, you know, our arts institutions are failing. Our, you know, our, our economy is eroding. Criminal justice system, our military, I mean, all kinds of elements of our society are falling apart. And part of the reason is that we have all this corruption that goes unanswered and unchecked. And um, 
you know, maybe maybe in some small part, um, art and artists can address this, and they can be instrumental in bringing people together as opposed to um, instruments of of agitation and uh, and division. Um, and so maybe if that's my big thing, uh, it's to reach out to other artists out there and and to the the sophisticated lay people that uh, that, yeah. that are watching shows, listening to shows like this. Um, you know, is to support art and artists and for artists who, you know, create to focus more on unity and on universal human themes. Like, like, I don't know, like, I'm not, I'm not some like eloquent, great. <laughs> that was pretty <laughs> great good. Statesman. That was pretty good. I don't, uh, not gonna lie. I, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I, I feel like I don't, the, the more I read, the more I research, the more I realize that I don't know anything. So I'm, I'm talking out of my behind. I, this might be pure sophistry. I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to say that you don't know, but honestly, I do feel like you are full of wisdom and this has been a really um, kind of insightful, actually, I, I think somewhat uplifting episode in a, in a weird way. And so I just thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for having principles and moral courage, and I'm going to continue to follow you and, and, and try to, I'm looking forward to you doing more of that indie indie work you were you were talking about and supporting you in that way and i hope our audience does as well so thank you so much for coming on well i appreciate that connie thank you very much and congrats on your new baby 